sometimes at home in the evening. Just because I want to, I light the candles in front of my altar and I sit there and I don't try to meditate, I'm just really happy to be there. And tonight, towards the end of the last sitting, I opened my eyes and there you all were. And the Buddha is back there on the wall, that beautiful tanka of the Buddha. And I was so happy to be here with you all and so appreciative of your practice. And I just wish we could just hang out and do this for another two or three weeks. Wouldn't it be fun? (laughs) Maybe you don't think so. You're probably packing your bags, but it would be fun, actually. It would if we could do it. So many, many years ago, as I first started to do some serious inner spiritual work, I was working with a group of people who are interested in Jungian psychology and the interface of that work and Western practices. And there was a saying that they worked with that actually came from the Greek healing mysteries. And the saying, something that Howie mentioned last night about the importance of of those wounded places in ourselves reminded me of this. And it goes like this, God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. So this is not a very Buddhist saying, of course, but I always think of it when I'm here and um, other places because it so points towards how important it is to meet our wounded places with caring and reverence even, because when we do, sometimes very important things open up. Today I had a conversation with a friend who was feeling pretty sad and upset and kind of shut down and... and, um, When I left this person, they said, I feel as though my heart is larger, which was a really sweet thing to say. And I thought about it for a moment, and I said, well, your heart has always been this large. It's just that you had a few doors that were closed. So we all know that place, right? That place where our heart has doors and windows closed. And the real question is, how how do you keep your heart open? How do we do that, you know? How do we have a heart that is vast and spacious and has all the doors and windows open? One of my favorite quotes is a quote that was written about one of the great Vipassana teachers of the last century, a a woman, I think how we knew her fairly well, Deepama, who was an Indian woman from Calcutta. And this is what Father Theophane wrote about her um, after she died. He said, what is your heart like? That is what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died, Deepama. They They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, 
drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So that's a good question, right? What will they find when they open up my heart or when they open up your heart? And how big will it be? So in the Metta Sutta, in the Sutta on Loving Kindness, we have the Buddha's basic teachings on the stance of kindness and of friendship. And as I said in the hall yesterday, for those of you who are here, of grandmotherly love. You know, meeting all beings with grandmotherly love. And um, one of the lines that I have always found the most challenging in the sutta says, um, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, and here's the kicker, omitting none, omitting none. So that phrase, often when I teach from the sutta, causes quite a bit of consternation. You know, how can I possibly not omit certain people from my loving kindness, maybe entire classes of people even? How can I meet every being who comes toward me with equal kindness? And so those are the kinds of questions that show us where these places are, where the doors of the heart are, if not closed, they're close to it, you know, and places where we're contracted and we're shut down and we're hurt and we're wounded and we're angry. And often those closed spaces are where we've been hurt in some way or other. So often when we teach metta practice, when we teach loving-kindness practice, we suggest that we do a period of time at the beginning to reflect on forgiveness and directing those places, our attention to those places where we know that we're hurt and we've been hurt and where the heart is shut down and where it's very, very difficult to extend goodwill and kindness. Henri Nouwen, who was a great Catholic theologian, said this. He said, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. The name of love practiced among those who love poorly. And who among us is skilled at love? You know, who among us? We all have various kinds of difficulties in loving the beings of our life. 
So also in the Metta Sutta, as it opens, it says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. That's a great line. By one who is skilled in goodness. Because the implication is that this is something we can learn. And this is something that we can train in and that we can practice and develop. And you can develop the skill of kindness and loving and goodwill just in the same way that you train to play the piano or learn to play tennis or in the same way that you develop muscles when you go to the gym or whatever it is that you do for exercise. So forgiveness is and why we teach it as part of loving-kindness practice is that it's a very particular form of loving-kindness and it's a very difficult form because of the woundedness that often precedes it. You know, if there's a need to forgive, something has happened, right? And it's a really, you know, the forgiveness word, it's difficult. I've even had some people say, you know, I think it's the other F word. You know, I just don't like it. And because, you know, we've all grown up in families where people have said forgive and forget, you know. And so it has this implication that you're supposed to ignore the pain or the injury or forget it or deny it or repress it. And who wants to do that? You know, that doesn't, that doesn't even feel right. And if that's not enough of a problem, then other kinds of questions sometimes arise like, can I protect myself if I forgive someone? What's the, what's the implication there? And what, what if I'm still angry? You know, why, how can I even think about forgiveness if I'm still pissed off? You know? Or how do I forgive myself? You know, some people find that forgiving other people is actually easier than forgiving themselves. Or, you know, maybe I'm doing this. You know, I'm going to say, I forgive you. Because if I do it, then you'll change, you know. So it's, there's sort of like a, a magic thing about it, you know. Or maybe I'm sitting here watching you out of the corner of my eye thinking, I'll wait until he changes and then I'll forgive him, you know. So that doesn't seem, none of that seems quite right. So we have some models for people who seem to be doing a pretty good job at this. One of them, of course, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who has provided such an amazing model of a big heart, um, along with many of his followers. And one of the things I'm always touched by are the times when I've heard His Holiness talk about the, the Communist Chinese and he talks about, he always uses that phrase, my friend's the enemy, you know. So my friend's the enemy, you know, what is this? And how is it that he keeps his heart so open to them? And, and, and then there, I've heard so many stories of different Tibetan monks and nuns who've been imprisoned and tortured, sometimes for years and years, and whose greatest concern while that is going on is that they will lose their compassion for their jailers. Isn't that amazing? 
You know, that's the, it's not, am I going to make it through or what will happen? It's, will I, will my heart shut down? You know, am I going to be able to keep my heart open during all of this time? It's said in the Tibetan world that the Dalai Lama is the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. So the Bodhi, a Bodhisattva is a great being in the Buddhist world who's putting the awakening of all other beings foremost on his or her plate and really working to bring all beings to awakening, not wanting to do it just for themselves. So I don't know whether he's really the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion, but what I get is that he takes that as his job description. This is what he does for a living. And if you've ever been even remotely close to him, you know, one of those gatherings where it's the Dalai Lama and 12,000 of his really good friends, you still get the sense of this being with a great, great heart. It's just wonderful to be around. And so he goes about, you know, and if he looks at you, he really looks, he's like, hi, right? And then he looks at you and he goes, hi. And you really feel like, oh my goodness, he's really seeing me. And, and if there's somebody who's suffering in the room, he always goes straight to them. You know, what's going on with you? Can I help? And I've seen him do this. It's really amazing. He just reverberates that way. So... What if you took that as your job description? What if we all, all 60 of us, left here and went home and without telling anybody, because it would probably be better that way, (laughs) decided to be the Bodhisattva of compassion? You know, it would be an interesting thing to do, to begin to see what, what could I do that? Would that help me to keep my heart open? Would it help me not to omit anyone? So another being who has had a lot to do in the world with, of forgiveness in recent years is Nelson Mandela. And many of you probably know that quote from him. He says, not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. So... How do we do this? How do we get stuck around forgiveness? And of course, one of the ways is that we get really identified with our stories. And we tell our story over and over and over and over. And we do this because sometimes to tell it over and over lessens our feeling of vulnerability. You know, you feel a little like you're in control if you can tell the story. You identify with it, but of course you really get identified with it. That's the problem. And every time we tell it, there's a way in which we re-poison ourselves with the the stuff of our anger and, and hurt. And we stay caught. And there actually have been studies done that show that every time you tell that study, tell that story, your blood pressure goes up your heart rate increases, and you have a higher level of stress hormone. Interesting, huh? So so you're doing it to yourself. You're re-injuring yourself each time you tell the story. And at the same time, although telling that story over and over again and getting identified isn't helpful, the skill of forgiveness 
is actually not about forgiving and forgetting, but it's about remembering fully and forgiving. Can we do that? Can we remember fully what happened and still keep the heart open? Jack Hornfield always loved to say when he would talk about forgiveness, he would say that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. (laughs) So, you know, can we actually acknowledge that it wasn't so great? You know, that this difficult thing really happened without poisoning ourselves with the story. Can we have a heart that's that big, you know, to be able to remember and to keep it open? Can we take on that job description of being a bodhisattva? So one of the ways to work with this is to actually to begin to develop the skill of compassion. Compassion is what will allow us to keep our heart open and to meet the pain with some equanimity. The word for compassion in Pali is karuna. Some of you are living in karuna. So we have metta, loving kindness. We have karuna, which is compassion. I might as well tell you the others. Mudita is sympathetic joy. And upekka, if anybody's in upekka, I don't know, um, is equanimity. Those are the four Brahma-viharas. Those are the four divine abodes of the heart. And they're also the four divine dormitories at Spirit Rock. It's kind of nice. So the word karuna means the quivering of the heart. It's that place where in the presence of the pain, of pain, the heart sometimes almost literally feels like it's quivering. Guanyin, there's probably some Guanyin's images around here. I know there are down around the dining room. Is she who sees the suffering of the world. Or Chenrezig, who is an image who is one of the Tibetan deities, has 1,000 arms, some of the images, each with an eye that is weeping in the palm of the hand. Because that, that those 1,000 eyes see the suffering of the world. So that's really what we're asked to do. Can we become like that, that have that ability to be present with our own pain and the pain of others? In this practice of Vipassana, wisdom and compassion are said to be the wings of this practice. Great. I always think of this great bird with wings, you know, kind of like a mother hen holding her chickens when I think of this. And so the practice of mindfulness actually helps to develop both wisdom, which are the insights that come, and compassion, the opening of the heart. And so karuna, compassion, the quivering of the heart, is the willingness and the ability to sit immediately with pain, to just be fully present with it, willing to be fully present with it, your own pain or that of another being. So it's the willingness to let go of denial, of pretending that the pain is not there, 
And what seems to be true is that as we, and how it relates to forgiveness, is that as we develop the ability to sit and to be fully present with pain, our own and others, that then we also are able to keep the heart open when there is the need to forgive. And so I think it's not actually really possible to forgive unless we are also able to be present with pain. So it seems pretty obvious that this is the skill, two skills now, forgiveness and compassion, are really important to develop and and it becomes really clear. So the word vipassana itself, some of you know this, but maybe not all of you, means to see clearly, to see clearly. So what you've been doing here is you've been looking directly at your experience, whatever that is. The breath, the itch, the sound, the pain in your back, and the pain in your heart. The sadness, the anger, the fear, the grief, whatever it is that's there in your heart. And sometimes it's really, really hard. I was blown away yesterday by how many people said, this has been the worst year of my life. It was amazing to hear so many people just so sad, so deep into their pain, you know. And it takes huge discipline. And I bow to all of you for walking back in here, sitting after sitting, putting your butt on your cushion or your chair, and allowing yourselves to move into that space where you are looking directly at whatever comes along. It's not all bad, obviously. Some of it's beautiful and blissful and happy. And we, I heard today about trees filled with light. And, you know, there are other thing, good things that are happening here, too. But some of it is the pain and the suffering. So as we look at our pain, it's not all just kind of nice and mushy, you know. It's sometimes when we look at our pain or we look at a place where we've been hurt, we see that what's really needed is some kind of really strong stand. So it's very important as we look at compassion and forgiveness that we not forgive for confuse this with a lack of boundaries. So, you know, you can keep someone completely out of your life and out of your living room and still allow them to be in your heart. It's very, very important to know that because some of us have been very badly wounded by people who might be really dangerous to let back into your life. But that doesn't mean that you can't hold them in your heart with some forgiveness and some compassion. When we begin to develop this ability to sit with another's pain and our own pain and our own woundedness, it really enables us and deepens what ability we might already have to see the wounds of those who have hurt us. So as we develop the skill of being fully present with pain, 
then sometimes we can kind of see, maybe just a, a little bit at first, but more and more, the confusion and fear and woundedness of whoever did whatever the harmful act was. Most people, I think, are actually doing difficult things out of their own fear and their own delusion. Most people. Maybe not all, but most. I think most people, in a very confused and often terribly deluded way, do the best that they can. You know, they, they just aren't seeing clearly. So, can we begin to even hold that as a possibility and allow the heart to open a bit? But this, you know, to do this, I mean, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh God, I can't do that. You know, that's too much. You know, my, my little heart feels like it's about this big and it just isn't ever going to let some of those folks in. And so it really does require, you know, a really vast kind of perspective. And, and that brings me back to the image of the Bodhisattva. I had forgotten this. I ran across it in my notes today that there's one description. I like this because of my new astronomical interest of a Bodhisattva. And a Bodhisattva can hold entire galaxies in the palm of her hand. So, you know, a galaxy you know, billions of stars, right? We've only got one puny star up here. This is billions of stars in the palm of her hand. That's a pretty big being to be able to hold an entire galaxy in the palm of your hand. So, you know, your training probably has a little ways to go yet. And that's okay, you know. My training has a long ways to go yet. And the art of forgiveness is a skill that can take a long time to develop. It can take months or even years. It can take periods of struggle and experimentation, of maybe touching it, your heart opens a little bit and then it closes again, of not getting it quite right. And sometimes all you have is just the idea, the intention. You know, so I'd like to be able to do that. There's that person he or she did that to me when I was little or whatever. And I can't do it yet. My heart is still really closed. But I have the idea that maybe someday I could. And that idea is really important. That's the seed. That's, you know how carrot seeds are? You know how teeny they are? Those little itty bitty, you, know, you can hardly see them in the palm of your hand. And you put them in the ground and my gracious, some weeks later, up comes this carrot, you know, out of that little teeny seed. How did that happen? It's kind of miraculous. So how does forgiveness happen out of just this little teeny seed that you plant? I don't know. What I do know is that it does if you keep planting the seeds and you keep watering it and tending to it and all of those things that one does when we, guard, we garden. Sometimes the development of the skill even demands that we look at our own stuff, you know? And so we have to ask questions like, where am I like the person who hurt me? Where am I just as angry or just as mean or just as likely to say cruel things? Because, you know, we all have 
all of that stuff. We all have everything in us. And sometimes when we can acknowledge it in ourselves, oh yeah, I know about that. But then I also know how I feel when I see something mean, and I know what it comes out of in me. You know, that place where I'm defensive and scared. And then, if I'm lucky, sometimes the idea goes, oh, maybe she's defensive and scared too. Huh. I wonder if that's true. And then I know better how to work with the situation, and my heart opens a little. There's, not all of you are old enough to remember Pogo, but Pogo was a comic strip character that those of us of a certain age remember. And there was a wonderful strip at one point where he comes in and he says, I have met the enemy and they are us. And he might have said, you know, I've met the enemy and they're just like me, because in fact they often are. And that place where we do us versus them is one of the places where we always prolong difficulty, where we always keep all kinds of wars, whether they're wars between two people or wars between big groups of people, where we keep it going. One of the things I've always loved to think about when I think about this whole process of developing forgiveness and compassion is the model of Aikido. And in Aikido, as the opponent comes towards you, the notion is that you get really big and spacious, so that you're not just bumping up against them, but you're really taking them into your energy field, becoming big enough to kind of take their energy in and then move everything into a safe place. So that the safety of the whole system is what is at issue. And this, I think, is the Aikido that we do of the mind and the heart. How do we keep everything in a safe place? And when we're wounded and we're not careful about it and we get identified with being the hurt one and the victim, then that keeps us in the mode of, you know, me versus you and us versus them. And the war keeps going. And when that duality drops away, even just for a moment, then, and we're interested in the care of the whole system, then the only question that is of any concern is how do we heal this? How do we heal this? I think it's also important to say that sometimes, you know, healing can take place even when there isn't outer reconciliation. Some of you may be sitting here and thinking, well, you know, I'm never going to be able to do any of this because that person's dead now. They're gone or they've disappeared or whatever, or they're not safe to be with. And my own sense is that the healing has to do with the opening of your heart. That's the only healing that you can do anything about. And that's always available to you, whether the person is still actually here or available or safe or not. Sometimes we do get to do that. We do get to actually meet the outer person. And sometimes there's an actual making peace with another person that heals and liberates. And I think again of Nelson Mandela, and one of the things about him that I love is that after he got out, when he was being inaugurated as the president, he invited the man who was his guard in prison to come to the inauguration as an honored guest. You know, so that was a real 
act of forgiveness and opening the heart. And there's so many stories like that. You know, there's whole books of stories about forgiveness. And probably, I was thinking as I wrote the talk, that if we could all just stop now and tell stories, you know, that you would all have stories to tell about the people that you've had some reconciliation with. And um, it would be a great evening, and we're not going to do it now. So. So when we can attend to the pain of our broken heart really directly, that's the kind of thing that can begin to emerge. Compassion for ourselves and for others. So we train with mindfulness. What you're doing, you're already well launched into training the heart in compassion. That in this practice where we've been learning presence, learning the ability to sit with whatever is there, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the joy, the broken heart, the frightening places. And, and we learn to sit with it. And, you know, you make it every time to the bell. So I just thought of this wonderful story because Howie talked about the bell last night too, and it's about compassion. Somebody wrote me a note on a retreat once, and they said, if someone leaps up from their cushion and says, ring the goddamn bell, <laughs> is it an act of compassion to ring the bell? <laughs> so I thought about it for a while. I was, it was one of those notes you know, that I, you pull out of the basket and you read it in front of everybody. So there I was, I just read it aloud. So I thought about it for a minute. And I said, no, <laughs> that would not be the act of compassion. But that doesn't happen, does it? I mean, it's never happened. Nobody ever leaps up and says, ring the bell. <laughs> we all make it to the end because you're training and you're really good at what you're doing and you're learning to sit with whatever comes along, just to be there, not to fix it. I mean, can you fix it when you're sitting here? No, not to judge it. You probably do judge it some. Not to feel sorry for yourself, because that's not compassion. Just presence. Just presence. Just what you're doing here on the cushion. Sometimes people ask me, you know, somebody's dying. What am I going to do? You know, I don't know how to be with that. But you know, the answer is, just go be with it. That's all people in those kinds of situations want. You know, so many people can't even bear the thought of being present with that kind of suffering. And if you learn to be present, that in itself is an enormous, enormous gift to someone else who is suffering. And as we do this practice here, it will, you know, your compassion is developing naturally. It's happening without your even knowing it. After I sat some long retreats, I began to notice that after I got home, we'd be driving places, and we'd go by an accident on the road, you know, a couple of cars off to the side, sometimes police cars and ambulances, sometimes not, and I would always weep. I was like, oh, because you could just feel the pain, you know, as I went by. It was like my heart quivered, and, and there it was. And I got a little annoyed after a while. It was like, what is this? You know, when am I going to stop weeping when I'm driving on the freeway? 
And then I heard what I was asking, you know, and I thought, wait a minute, do I want to stop? What would it be like, wouldn't it be wonderful if we all wept every time we saw an accident on the freeway? Because if we all wept every time something like that happened, I think we'd all be more careful and there would be fewer accidents because our hearts would be open. So it just begins to come as you do this practice. And we learn that this place of forgiveness and compassion and ability to be with pain and keep the heart open, it it's, uh, begins to be a place, a place almost, that you can find. It's a kind of a geography. It's not something that you have to you know, make happen. You just begin to know where to move the mind and heart so that it will be open. So we develop our skill of compassion. We're better able to rest with our pain and suffering. And as we do that, and we begin to see how much like everyone else we are, that that sense of separation begins to drop off. And we also begin to see that place where we see how much of our fear and our reactivity is rooted in a really strong sense of I and me and mine. And so when we begin to be in this place where there isn't any us and them, it's just moving the entire system into a place of safety, then there's so much less reason to create a sense of me versus you, to concretize self, and to create more suffering and war. We begin to see that it's all impermanent, it's all arising and passing, it's all in flux, it's none of it's solid. And and it's enormous. You know, so speaking of galaxies in the palm of one's hand, many of you are probably really familiar, and if you aren't, I invite you to with those images from the Hubble Deep Space Telescope of the deep space images that have many, many galaxies in them. I mean, if you want a sense of your own importance or lack thereof, it's a great image to look at. And, and that's helpful to hold what's going on in some sense of perspective and to realize it's utterly impossible for you to be a solid and separate self that can have a war with anyone else. So that refuge in the big picture, you know, my friend John Travis these days likes to talk about refuge in the big, brings a kind of equanimity, that spaciousness of mind that allows us to be less reactive and and allows us to perceive the suffering of all beings, even those who have harmed us. Yanaponikatera says our compassion will also include those who at the moment may be, may be happy but act with an evil and deluded mind. In their present deeds we shall see their future state of distress and compassion will arise. Just being able to see that in really difficult people and acts. There's other practices you can do to train besides the ability of just being present. You can do 
practices of compassion that are very similar to the practice of loving-kindness, where you work with phrases, you know, may your suffering come to an end, may you have ease, and where you're actually sitting and bringing to mind the suffering of yourself or another being and extending that quivering heart to them. I also really like, there's a Tibetan practice where when you see something that is painful or difficult or bring it to mind, where you actually breathe it into your own being, breathe it into your heart. And the heart then does quiver and responds with compassion, which you breathe out. And I find that a really, really useful practice in everyday life. I think it's a great practice for when I read newspapers, which I still do, although hardly anybody does, so maybe when you look at the news on the internet or whatever, when you see difficult things on the television or when you hear sirens, to breathe in the pain and the difficulty. You can give it a color or a shape if you want, and then allow it to be in your heart. If your heart isn't big enough, you can borrow the heart of the Buddha or any other great being of your choice and let it sort of be right there behind you, and that'll help you take it into your heart, and then you breathe out the compassion. And it really does in a kind of interesting way. It begins to enlarge our hearts. Somebody asked one of the really great Tibetan teachers once, you know, well, if I'm doing that, you know, I'm breathing in the suffering of somebody who has cancer, and I get cancer, you know, isn't that a problem? And he said, well, you know, it would prove it worked, didn't, wouldn't it? So... I haven't known anybody who's acquired um, difficult diseases or situations from being willing to be compassion, compassionate. So this requires great strength, and it requires power to practice it well and thoroughly. This is not a, you know, a wimpy kind of practice. You have to be a warrior in order to really be willing to take in pain like this, and, whether, and, and really to be willing to take in your own pain. You know, it takes so much strength. The strength and power of an athlete or a dancer or a mountaineer, it's a goal, you know, to be a bodhisattva, to be that big. How can you take on this training, you know? And it also is a really joyful practice. It's a wonderful practice to let your heart be that big. And Sharon Salzberg says in one of her books, she says, joyful compassion comes from knowing the wonderful capacity of the human heart to connect and wishing that more of us felt connected to each other. When we cross this threshold of understanding, we realize how much we want to help all the beings in the world to come and join us. Wouldn't it be nice we could invite them all in to the hall here at Spirit Rock and just fill the place up with all beings, because our hearts are that big. So in order to do this, one other thing, and that is, in order to let our heart be big and to take on that suffering, we actually have to be willing to be taught. We have to be willing to do the training. So one of the things that really helps with this training of the heart is the third thing I wanted to mention tonight, which is the practice of gratitude. And gratitude is actually an enormously powerful tool in softening and opening to the many teachings that come our way. 
There's another teaching that I've quite liked. It always makes me laugh to t say it, but um, it's a pretty challenging teaching, actually. And that is that every being you encounter is enlightened but one. And you know who the one is. And what they are all doing, they are doing to help you wake up. So we chuckle, right? It's kind of cute. But then, when somebody does something really difficult and you think, oh, she's an enlightened being and she's doing that to help me wake up? I don't think so. <laughs> but the point is, of course, that all events and all beings and any event and any being can, in fact, be a teacher, often an extremely challenging teacher for us. And the question is, how can I use this experience to deepen my awakening, to open my heart even more? And that's actually a place of gratitude, that place of really being willing to see that this could teach you something. It's a thread that's common to almost all forms of spiritual practice. David Steindl-Rast, who's both a, a Catholic monk and a great Zen practitioner, says, has a book out that is called Gratitude is the Heart of Gratefulness, I think, is, is the Heart of Prayer. And, you know, so that he's saying that right at the heart of a prayer life is the practice of gratitude. I have one friend who has a gratitude buddy, and every day on email they exchange some small thing that they're grateful for that day. They make it a practice. And someone, again, the friend whose heart was feeling a little shut down today, was telling me that they, have, they were really suffering yesterday, and then sort of, without thinking about it, began to think of a few things that they were grateful for, and began to make a list of all the gratitudes, which really helped to counter the suffering so much. And, you know, you could say, well, how am I supposed to be grateful too? You know, because here we are, we're in a Buddhist world, there isn't any somebody that you're supposed to be grateful to. And, you know, I think you can sort of put a to whom it may concern on your gratitude. Um, it doesn't matter so much. I think it matters much more that we are grateful than that it has a recipient. It sounds wonderful as long as things are easy and pleasant. You know, it's easy to be grateful. You're grateful for this hall and for the beauties of Spirit Rock. It's really hard to be grateful for your aching back or for your upset tummy or, or the really sad things that are going on in your heart. But when we really give them our attention, then there are always those places where we realize that even this difficult thing led to something new. You know, I'm thinking again of someone I know whose work life really dramatically changed in recent months and said to me a while ago, a few weeks ago, but all these other things just opened up. I'm so excited. I have all these new things to do. I wouldn't have had that, you know. And His Holiness, again, the Dalai Lama, really deeply understands that partly how he learned everything he knows about compassion. He learned from the communist Chinese. They led him 
into the practices of compassion and opening the heart. I'm missing. So here's a poem. It's from W.S. Merwin, and it's called Thanks. He says, listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you, in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you, in the faces of the officials and the rich, and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with cities growing over us, we are saying you, saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying and waving, dark though it is. So none of this is to say that we don't work for change. I want to make sure to say that, because of course we do. But in this very present moment, this weird thing that we call the present moment that you can hardly pin down, because as soon as you think about it, it's gone. In this very present moment, all we can do is be here. It's too late to change the present moment. And if we learn to be fully present, open to all of the teaching that can be present in that moment, then compassion arises and forgiveness arises. And in that openness, then we can see clearly what must be done, whatever it is that we need to do. So in the end, just a couple of more things coming back full circle to the Metta Sutta. We're working at becoming skilled in goodness, as the Sutta says, working with forgiveness and with compassion, with gratitude for all the events of our lives. But the last four lines of the Sutta can be really puzzling. You know, you've done all this stuff. I'm going to read you the whole thing in a minute about cherishing all living beings, omitting none, radiating kindness over the entire world, and then it says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. It's like, huh? Where did this come from? It always feels a little hard. And I think the key to that verse is by not holding to fixed views. And the really important place is that when we hold to this really solid view that I am solid, permanent, and the center of my universe, that's the problem. 
And as we begin to open, as we begin to open the heart to allow all beings in, as we begin to open to understand how incredibly interconnected we are, that nothing about us is solid or separate or permanent. When the heart is open the way we've talked about it, when all the doors and windows of that heart are open, when that view is vast and spacious, then we're not caught by the wanting and the grasping and the attachment. And then we step out of those cycles of being born again and again and again into suffering, the cycles of this lifetime or the cycles of many, however you want to hold it. So here's the whole metta sutta. I invite you to listen to it as a kind of meditation. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So may all the doors and windows of your hearts be open, and thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.